Here we are. Here we are. We made it. Um, after some... I, I mean, this was this was time well spent, because now the next time we do a podcast, it's like picnic <laughs> table. Blue. This configuration. What's the... Uh, what episode are we on? This will be episode 29, I think. I've, That's I've, a lot of episodes. I've recorded one that I haven't posted yet. Um, Is it the lost episode? I have a couple of lost episodes. <laughs> Believe it or not, I don't actually post everything that I record. <laughs> I, had, I have one barcast that I, I was walking across the Williamsburg Bridge, and it was like my second night here, mm-hmm. and I was extremely happy to be back in New York, right. and I just was like gushing about how happy I was. And most of your most of them are solo barcasts. I would say two-thirds are solo. Two-thirds are solo. Okay. Yeah. So this this one on the Williamsburg Bridge, like I haven't posted that yet, because I didn't want to jinx the New York experience. Like Had I posted it on my second night in New York how happy I was, I knew that everything was going to... I see. Crash I down. see. So I'm, that I might. I have to listen back to that one. And okay. See. Very cool. Well, I'm um, happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for coming. Um, so I'll properly introduce you, Gary Chow, uh, founder runner of Orbital, st- studio f- space runner, space runner. Um, if if I was telling someone else about Orbital, I would say it's like it's a space, it's a studio for growing networks. Um, and then people say, "What does that mean?" <laughs> <laughs> like a garden, <laughs> gut yeah. flora. You know, I think that the tagline has been something that I've iterated on quite a bit over the years, right? Like, I think the very first tagline for Orbital, which never made it onto the website, was uh, "Home for Independent Creators to Work, Teach, and Learn," mm-hmm. and um, that never made it on the website because uh, I realized quickly that the people who were here wouldn't all necessarily identify as independent creators. And what ended up happening was that it was primarily people in my network, but they were all from various aspects of my network. So it became kind of like a a physical container for my network. And I don't know if you've had this mental model, but I've always had this mental model of like, oh, these are the people that I know through this channel. These are the people I know through this channel. And these are like my other friend group here. And they don't really mix because they also kind of represent different facets of my interests and personality and stuff. And so this was a situation where like everyone kind of showed up from all sorts of different places. Right. Which was a little bit uncomfortable for me at the the start. But then I realized, oh, this is actually good. Like you don't want – if we had – if Orbital was a place for only independent creators to work, teach, and learn – that's that will get you a monoculture, yeah. Right, that gets you a very only one slice. Um, but like you know, gardens don't work that way, right? You know, you need you need fertile soil, and you need a mix of nutrients, and you need you know heterogeneity in it. And so, even though it was very hard to categorize everybody at Orbital into some easy bucket or label, that was actually a good thing. Yeah. Um, and it's worked out, I think, culturally. I yeah. think it's worked out financially in the sense that, uh, well, first of all, um, you know, independent creators don't have 400 bucks a month to pay for a workspace. Right. Like, you would just have a bigger apartment, you know, or you'd spend that money on your practice, on yeah. your work. Uh, and so that was just never a tenable concept, you know, at all. Yeah. Um, so we have a mix of people here. Um, I, I, I think, like, back to your question of how, how, like, how to describe it, you know, it's a work in progress. Um, but I mean, I think, I think there's, yeah, like you said, I think there's beauty to just resisting description. Like, what is the problem you're trying to solve, right? Like, yeah. Uh, and and it can be tempting to say, well, of course it should be this one bite tagline that everyone immediately intuitively grasps. But like, actually, you know, I think that can work against you. I think it's worked for you. 
I think a lot of times too, you 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 get to the certainty about what you're doing and what you're about by piecing things together in mm-hmm. retrospect, right? Like you know you can you can easily it's kind of this like the same thing with you know startups that are successful in the founder narrative. Right. Most of the time, that founder narrative is constructed, and, and not necessarily from a bad, evil place, but it's like, oh yeah, I did that thing, and I did that thing, and that's why. Right. Now I see how all the dots are connected. Right. But when you are looking forward and you are in the you know, you're trying to create the dots. Like it doesn't always make sense to you. Yeah. Um, well, and, and something you were telling me the other day about transitions. Like I was thinking about it this morning when when I was like, quote unquote, preparing for this discussion because like, first of all, I, I, like not to get super gushy, but to to talk about what orbital has meant for me, but also you. Like, I've had multiple transition periods, and I think even even the first one, which was probably around Canvas Networks era not only helping me like manage that transition, but also like pushing me in a gentle Gary way into the transition. <laughs> and, and I think like one of the things we didn't talk about it the other day when we were talking about transitions, but you know, there, there's a twofold value of orbital for, for me. I mean, there's many fold, but when I think about orbitals place for me when I'm in transition, a, but it's also just comfort in perpetual transition. Right. So like, I think the point that I'm at with my life is, life might be full of transitions and life might be a constant transition. Yeah. That might be the default state. Right. right? Like that's the, that's kind of like the, the, the sad conclusion in a sense <laughs> is that, is that there's no certainty. There's no, uh, you know, once you get to the peak, you're not done. Right. Like there's all of a sudden another mountain just materializes in front of you. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, that's exhausting. You know, that's, and, and it's not for everybody. And it's not, and I think that there are times in your life where, you're ready to take on a transition. There are times in your life where you want to hang out in the boat for a while. Yeah. Um, and you're right. I think Orbital, in, in some sense, has been, uh, you know, when I left USV, uh, I got a lot of great advice from the partners. Um, and one conversation with Brad Burnham in particular was uh, just around this concept of having an anchor. Um, and I never really had thought about that. Like, I never really, uh, I always thought about maximizing optionality mm-hmm. and part of what Brad was trying to communicate to me is that like an anchor isn't something that ties you down an anchor is the thing that frees you Mm -hmm. to go even farther to take bigger risks to you know and and um and that has been very true right like in in the space I think I I think I kind of intuitively knew but I didn't really understand or internalize um that a community was what I needed um but what I did know was I knew that very consciously a space was Spaces are catalysts for communities, yeah. right? They allow communities to form. Um, without a physical space, it becomes too um, diffuse, right? Yeah. You can't coalesce a group of people. Um, so I very much knew that going into it. I don't think I truly understood how important that was going to be until we were in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It's like it's easy to over-intellectualize like, a space and, and talk about sort of a priori and come up with all these hypotheses. But I, if I were to have done that process when, you know, you just started Orbital, I probably would have missed, like, things that then just came very intuitively. Like, I'm here for a month. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. Uh, I'm visiting. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, oh, great, I, I'm going to go to Orbital. Right. And I come, and uh, the Wi-Fi password is saved. Edlin, <laughs> Edlin and Nikki are in their spots, and I sit next to them. Like, it, just the, the, the homecoming feel right. um, is super powerful, and it's it's not easy to like anticipate or explain before the fact it's it's like a very almost like visceral 
highway. Homes are hard to find. Yeah. Because, like, if you think about it, where and when do you have any kind of platform for that, right? Like, you know, the, the family you grew up with, the, the natural thing for you to do is to leave that nest. You know, the, the school that you went to, right, you know, you need to be moving on. There's a transition there, right? right. You know, the, the companies that you work at, those aren't permanent. You know, those are viable for a period of time, and then you need to move on. And so, like, you know, I think, I think, I think transition is the default state. Yeah. Um, and so when you can create these places that allow, you know, people to kind of find homes, um, you know, and sometimes, you know, so we run these programs here that are communities of practice for product managers and designers and engineering managers to connect with each other across the industry. And it's key in the sense that they are not at their office, they're here at Orbital. And they are with a network of people that they didn't know before, right? And that, in a sense, is a home away from their job mm -hmm. because it's in the space where they can ask the questions that they don't really want to ask, you know, they because, you know, the workplace is a performative environment. Right. You know, you're going to get judged for all the things that you do or you don't do. And everyone, for the most part, at a startup is being, has been promoted into a job that they've never done before. So you're doing everything for the first time. Yeah. So how could you magically just know exactly what you need to do? And the truth is you don't. But a lot of problems emerge when you don't have the space to go and actually ask the dumb question yeah. or to share the challenges that you have or to talk through things. And these, these networks are kind of these, uh, these programs that we run. They're these momentary networks, these momentary homes for people to come in and actually have conversations that wouldn't otherwise be having. It's, it's funny you talk about performative, like when you, when you use that word, I, I, I wanted to sort of have like a weird aphorism type thing of like almost like one way you could define home is a place where you don't perform like non-performative spaces non-performative spaces are so few and far between well it's it's the anchor that brad was talking about yeah right and, and but i mean I've, i think i've also seen some of the programs where i think people's inclination in these programs is to be performative because that that can be sort of a default i think you have to design them in a certain way yeah right like and i think that's where um uh you know, I mean, we, you, you and I have like similar, like weird alternate path realities in the sense that we both worked at a company that was building platforms for networks, social networks of people. So we thought a lot about this concept of how do you kind of construct social environments, you know, on the web. I think it's been really interesting to actually be confronted with building that in the physical space, like yeah. building that in, in real life, because uh, I can't hide behind a UI or I can't hide behind a mobile app or a set of servers like people are having an experience right in front of me and if it's not working it's going to be very very obvious right um and i think that and so one of the key things is like how do you create the space for people to feel like they can be themselves how do you enable trust amongst a bunch of strangers who've never met each other before um how do you set that tone because you're right if 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 it stays in the performative space then no one's going to get anything out of it yeah right they don't they don't need more places to perform yep um, I want to attempt a, an awkward segue. <laughs> so one of, one of the things that I wanted to make sure we got to talk about was I finally when did you when did you publish this postindustrialdesign.school thing? So um, postindustrialdesign.school uh, is is our online container for a conversation that uh, my partner Christina She and I um, had actually here on this very patio table um, in June of 2016. Okay and. We had this conversation because 
Uh, we've been teaching this course, Entrepreneurial Design, at the School of Visual Arts MFA and Interaction Design program uh, for a number of years. Um, and we've been teaching together, I think, for the past like four years. And it's been a great, this is class where the students launch um, a $1,000 project in the world. They have to make $1,000 by the end of the semester using the internet, um, primarily through crowdfunding. And it's this ex interesting experiential learning activity, you know, uh, where they don't know what's going to happen, where the outcomes are outside of their control. Um, and, you know, it's a really great experience for them. It's actually been a really wonderful experience for us as teachers. So we've gotten a lot of questions over the years from people and a lot of emails. And we decided, you know, we really have to write up what our takeaways are. What have we learned? Like yeah. What has worked and, and what makes sense? And But the problem is that it was such a behemoth kind of set of problems and questions and ideas and thoughts to put on the table so we actually decided just like uh like it was hard to get started writing right. about it right um so we're like okay we gotta get this outside of our heads let's actually just record ourselves having a conversation about it and then transcribe it got and then it. we can and then if we do that we've got all the words and the ideas out because it's easier to have things in a dialogue yeah but as a writer, it's very hard to just lock yourself in the room with like white walls and expect that you're going to crank out all the words in your head. Well, well, that's the thing. Like, and if if you're listening, I recommend pausing it and then just going to postindustrialdesign.school and reading it because, like, I don't I don't want to. Um, I'm so interested in the structure of it and and like, th so the contents are great, but like the length is great the conversational style is great like there I, I just thought it was really well executed because i've read a lot of those roundups or summaries and it's easy i, w I would imagine the temptation is to jot down all the things like did you did you have to kind of scope it back down or, or oh yeah i mean this is this is a massive production yeah right so um it and i think we both knew it was going to be that way so so here's what we got wrong yeah you know, our initial thought was, if we just record ourselves having this conversation, we'll have all the words out, and it'll be easy for us to then um, go and try to, like, morph this into a giant essay. Right. Um, and um, what we developed, you know, our first attempt at this, actually, before we even sat down and did that, was um, I had the to-do to try to write something, and then at our next check-in, guess what? I had nothing. <laughs> uh, and then Christina took a swing at it. And at our next check-in, she had nothing. And yeah. so, like, I think there was this realization that this was not going to be a blog post that we just hammer out. Yeah. Um, and so that's where we realized we had to kind of go and have this dialogue, right? Okay. So, um, so you started, you said, we're going to write this post. That wasn't working. And then that was the impetus to say, let's talk it out. Let's talk it out, yeah. right? Because, you know, when we would have our meetings, they'd be very productive meetings, and we'd cover and sketch out the whole outline of everything we want to talk about, yeah. yet we were unable to actually just do it. Right. So, uh, and so that was when we're like, you know what, why don't we just record ourselves? Right. Because we're saying all the things, and, you know, then one of us can take it and transcribe it, and it should be really easy. What ended up happening was um, I had the responsibility of taking the first cut after the transcription process, and... I kind of realized that, you know, this actually worked really well as a dialogue. And part of the challenge was that... Did, sorry, did you export... Who, how oh, did, what you, was did the you outsource the transcription? I did. So um, I, have a, I have a service that I use called Fancy Hands, and um, I have this backlog of tasks that I hadn't used for a while. Mm -hmm. um, the thing with Fancy Hands is that um, you 
have to come up with tasks that are time boxed to 20 minutes max. Okay. And so I was like, well, we've got a couple, we got like an hour, you know, I think maybe 90 minutes of a, of a interview here. Um, I could just create a Google Doc. Uh, well, first of all, I digitized the, you know, the recording, put it on SoundCloud, had a link for it. And then I created a Google Doc, and I just created time, uh, time markers. So zero to five minutes, five to ten minutes, mm-hmm. ten to fifteen minutes. And I figured, you know, it probably takes about 20 minutes to transcribe five minutes of audio because mm-hmm. you have to, like, listen to it back and forth and make sure you get all the words right, right. especially when there are two people talking. Um, and so I just kind of put those mile markers in an empty Google Doc, and then I just shared that Google Doc and created a bunch of, you know, fancy hands tasks so that multiple people could work on it, you know. In parallel. Yeah. You yeah. could multi-thread that yeah, uh, or multitask that. Um, and so they transcribed it actually really, really quickly, right? Because you're distributing the tasks out. How quick? Like, oh, it, no, it took like a day. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because they're, they're all just, they're farming out all I haven't used fancy the, hands before, so I don't know the turnaround time on these things. They're pretty quick. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, and, and again, since their time box is like 20 minutes, you yeah. know, they got to they gotta finish their task and move on and get another task. Um so that worked out really well, and then all of a sudden we had this amazing transcription, you know, of the doc, uh, of our conversation, uh, and so that's when I was like, okay, cool. Let me let me see if there are high level themes, and you know, I think obviously having had a con- been a participant in the dialogue, I already had a sense in my mind of what the themes were, right? Um, and uh, and what ended up happening was like the the, the, the published dialogue is not exactly the chronological order of how we've talked about everything Mm -hmm. um and uh we've moved a lot of things around but then also um we would then go back and forth right on on the iterations and you know i took a swing and then she took a swing and then in a lot of cases you know we looked back at the questions they're like you know i would answer that slightly differently or i forgot to say this one thing right or the way in which i said that's not the most effective way let me reframe that a bit um, and so we edited, you know, the words that we had. And were you doing that in a Google Doc that you were sharing, or how did you go through that process? Uh, it's funny. We had a Google Doc for the main transcription just so that we had a, uh, uh, like, kind of your your stock, hear all the words. Yeah. Uh, and then we were primarily using paper on Dropbox. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something about just having a different physical space, or a different digital space, like, Dropbox versus Google Docs. Mm-hmm. Just knowing that it's a diff- that's where you're, that's where the the working doc is versus where the original doc is. And you know, I don't know if that is just us being weird, but as a PM, there's something about paper for Dropbox that I really like because it cares about how it looks. Maybe for maybe that's that was a different process than you were going through. Maybe the important thing for you was just separating those two spaces. But Dropbox, going back to performance, like. There's something a little bit performative about Dropbox paper that I have. To, I'm talking about myself. Like I have to be careful because, on the one hand, it gets me excited about the work and it feels like I'm drawing a bridge between what I'm working on the output. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's less conducive for me to jot down ideas because. Yeah. I, I ha- and this is a blocker that I have with writing in general is unless I'm in Sublime Text, mm-hmm. I have a little voice in my head going off all the time. Sublime Text is pretty much the only interface where I can write without that. I see. Yeah, well, you know, Google Doc, when you open a, a Google Doc, you're working, right? Like, right. it's 
that is very, whether it likes it or not, it is associated with a place where you do work. Right. And I think that was where um, paper is a relatively new uh, product. Also, there's a connection there. Christina Cassiopo was one of the PMs on it, and and, and Christina helped invent this course that Christina, she, and I were talking about. Right. Uh, And so it kind of felt like kind of a cool place to do it. Yeah. And also, we, Christina and I had adopted paper as a place for us to work on some collaborative stuff. So it was kind of, we were kind of playing with it as a home for certain things. So it kind of made sense to do that there. But I do agree with you. I think that, like, the visual design, the typography, um, just the cleanness of the product and the feel of it, um, you know, it's kind of like when you want to work on a project, sometimes it's helpful to, like, clear out a room yep. and set up your room and set up your space uh, so that you feel like you've got this, you know, the space. Um, you know, versus feeling like you're putting your construction hat on and getting into a Google Doc and, like, you know, right. working on a spec, right. which comes with a certain amount of dread. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, this is almost a, I wouldn't say it's a new medium, but it's it's a it's a format of sorts that hasn't been standardized, which is the summary or the retrospective uh, that I see a lot of them, mm-hmm. and they come in various formats. I feel like you... Well, I mean, this reading this inspired me to round up a lot of things that I've been thinking about in a similar way. Um, it's just a good mix of, again, like the you've got variety of context. Right? You've got quotes, yeah. you've got images, you've got artifacts, you've got process, but it's not a process dump, right? So I think there's a there's a good temptation, which is just like, oh, I need a change log or a, a process log. Well, sometimes you do, right? I mean, I think right. the, the the context here is that you know, I this was. You know, this is a project that I've been working on for five years. Yep. You know, like, I've never spent five years of my life working on anything. Right. You know, and I think that, you know, I can't speak for Christina, but I think that in the process of teaching has been the simultaneous process of trying to figure out what what is working here. Like, what is the thing that, and also, like, what is the thing that draws us to this? And, and was, why does this have value? Why is this important to us? Why is this important to the students? Um, and, you know, I think there was a need to try to sit down and finally understand it. It's kind of like if you've gone through five releases of five iterations of, of releasing product, um, you know, you're going to take a step back and like do an evaluation at the end of the quarter and say, okay, well, what's, what's working here, you know? Um, and so this was definitely a major milestone type of roundup. Right. Um, and... And so there were a lot of, and so I think there were a lot of things, um, you know, I think it'd be hard to do this. It, it's, we couldn't have done this after year one. I think it'd be hard to do this after year two. Year three, um, Christina and Leland had just gotten started. Right. Uh, and then year four, I kind of decided to change a bunch of stuff. So we're right. still in the middle of iteration. Year five was the first year we felt like we kind of um, had fixed a lot of the problems, you know, and that was when I think we had enough to reflect on. Um, uh, I should also say that, like, so this was a considered uh, effort to try to produce this, um, and I think we had the scope in mind before we got into it. Um, and then I think there was also, uh, you know, after going through the edits ourselves and feeling like we had the themes emerge, right? The section headers they came, they were the last part of the process, right? Um, and. After we got to that, that's when we asked um, Liz Danzico, who's the chair of the program that we teach at, um, to be our editor. 
and mm. she and it was important because one Liz is just a Liz is a brilliant editor just you know outside of just context altogether yeah but she's also been like the shepherd right. of this whole course right she also she our course fits into her program it is one piece of many pieces um, and so she was like the perfect person to do that because she has the full purview to understand things that maybe we don't even understand. Yeah. Um, and this thing was so massive that neither Christina nor I could be the editor and do it justice. Right. Because we're just too close to it. Right. Um, and then another piece of this was inviting Paul Ford to write a forward for this, which was huge because, you know, one, Paul Ford is Paul Ford. Right. Um, but two... Paul has uh, Paul's also on the faculty at SVA, and so he knows he knows everybody that we're talking about. He knows all of the projects uh, and all of the students, um, and there's a familiarity there. Um, and so, one of the hard things about trying to uh, share a deep retrospective with people is, well, how do you get into this in the first place? Right. Um, and so, you know, Paul's piece, like is in my mind like really critical to like setting that whole thing up totally yeah well it's it's beautifully executed people should check it out uh (laughs) postindustrial designs dot school yes i want to talk a little bit uh about the program itself for a second and and the role of writing and i I don't i don't know where we would go with this but i'll just like lay out some things i'm thinking about one is we've we've already touched on audio and text as ways to jot down ideas and and this particular project was a synthesis of audio and text which i think is interesting uh i we're doing a podcast now i'm writing a lot less than i used to i also know and agree with writing being super important for both the sva program and the orbital 1k uh you use the writing backwards exercise as a pretty significant like gating function for idea preparation what i mean by that is if you can't cogently write down what you're doing, uh, then you're not ready. Um, and, and I think there's there's a slightly nebulous add-on to that, which is if you can't cogently write it down, and like if people don't engage with it, there's I think there's some important questions about whether you're ready or not. Um, Christina in in the essay writes something interesting about medium and sort of open mic night, and I want to explore that metaphor a little bit more. And then one other thing to throw into this soup, and then we can take it wherever is. I'm still hung up on performance and, and, and what you were talking about earlier. And then I sort of posited maybe maybe home is the place where there isn't performance. But thinking more about the programs themselves, I actually think a more accurate way to describe it is it's a safe place to practice performance. Uh, it's, it's like if you're a theater troupe, this is rehearsal. And so what's interesting about rehearsal is rehearsal is at once performance and critique or, or, or safe reflection on performance. And I think that's what happens at Orbital is people people are performing, but they're performing within this context of um, sort of this meta context of, of eagerness and willingness to and desire to, to then reflect on those performances. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, actually theater is a really interesting metaphor, right? Because we're here in New York, and when people talk about theater, instantly they talk about Broadway, right? And, you know, bright lights and everything and these epic audiences and you know um the but the thing is you know every every actor that performs on broadway 
has cut their teeth by performing in all these other spaces along the way that were formative to the development of their craft, formative to the development of their identities, formative to building a network of people to continue to play with. Right. And um, and so that's just part of, I think, like, uh, I think it's critical to have those pathways if you want to have the broadways, you yeah. know. And so, um, you know, I think the best metaphors for that are, are like, looking at art schools. Um, but what happens when you're outside of the academy, you know, and, um, you know, you don't have that as much. And I think that's where, you know, Orbital, the 1K, the boot camp programs, I think, have been uh, a place to allow people to start to um, realize their own agency. And by having a space where they could perform in and learn and iterate and then realize they can take things on and do their own thing, um, which is fantastic to see. Yeah. You know, on the writing side, like, I think your your point about writing uh, and the use of it, you know, I think about it a lot as um, writing is the cheapest way for you to prototype. It's the cheapest and fastest way for you to prototype, assuming that you are a capable writer. And a lot of people um, haven't used writing in that way, and it takes a while to get them used to thinking that, wait, you mean this just writing my words out like that that's that's a good enough of a test right you know and because we tend to think when we're building a product a digital product for instance we got to get to the pixels we got to figure out how it looks we got to figure out you know the logo and all these other things you know and and that would be kind of like saying to a band that hey to, in order to write a song you have to get an amazing guitar and a great amp and a bunch right. of really great mics and you know none of that stuff's going to really matter to the song right you know, and so um, and so, writing is a good way to figure out, you know, uh, what it is. Because the way that you figure out what you're working on is to start to to move along the process of that discovery. Totally. You know, and, and uh, putting on our PM hats for a second. I don't know if this happened to you, but when I started being a PM, I thought the spec was the. I thought I thought the process of writing the spec was the process of socializing the idea and saying. Hey everyone, this is the idea. And then I realized that I was probably the biggest beneficiary to spec writing. Uh, that that like that whole process was just me coalescing the idea. And once the idea was actually really solid, it was really easy to package into mockups or wireframes or, or tasks. Uh, going from zero to one of the spec was just me figuring out what the what the product. Well, it's, if it's all in your head, it's very hard for anyone to engage with it. Right. And if it's hard for anyone to engage with it, it's hard for anyone to make it better or to contribute to that. Right. And then the onus is all on you for inventing the genius. <laughs> and that just doesn't happen very often, mm -hmm. right? And so, uh, you know, and I don't know if that ever really happens. Mm -hmm. So step one of this is can you just start to get it out of your head? Right. And, um, you know, you have some people that are tremendously talented visual designers or tremendously talented in, in some medium, and, and, and whatever medium works for you is great. Um, but writing is accessible, you know, it, not just for those who are writing, but for those who are reading. Um, you know, I think the the canonical post on this, and, and this is the most popular URL that I sent out in 2016 by far, is a post by Nicole Fenton called Words as Material. Mm -hmm. It is like the Bible, and it's the thing... Well, I get in these discussions with people about the problems they have in the experience of trying to 
um, work with their teams or they're trying to figure out how to get started on a new idea. And, um, you know, Nicole talks about a lot of things in this piece, but one of the concepts is similar to the whole Amazon working backwards, you know, idea with the press release um, that, but instead of writing a press release, you know, the tactic that she shares is, can you write an email to, to a friend? Right. So imagine that you have launched your thing and you want to tell your friend about it. Do you have the words to do that? You know, do you know, like, or is that email a, a five page paper or can you get that down to, you know, a few sentences and do you understand what you want to focus on and what you don't want to focus on and have you made those decisions? And, and, you know, in that process of writing, you are designing, you know, you are designing and you are creating a prototype and that's an accessible form for someone to then engage with. Like, I don't know if you've had this problem where you built your wireframes and you show your wireframes to somebody and they just don't understand and they start trying to, you know, they they try to provide feedback to be helpful, but it's totally the wrong kind of feedback because they're looking at the colors and they shouldn't be looking at the colors. They should be looking at this other thing. Um, And so it's hard for humans to coordinate. So I think I'm 100% bought in on, and I need to read this this article, writing as material. You would you would love it. Wor- it words as material. Wor- words as words material. as material. Okay, it's this idea that words are the material that you should be using. Right. Um, and and also language. I, I I'm just suspicious of ideas in in one's head. Like I I'm skeptical that those even exist. Like I I, I lean toward you are hallucinating. And uh, having illusions, and I just don't believe it until it's written. So I, I'm I'm a big believer in in that process. I think the thing that's been interesting for me personally, I'm just sort of talking about my own challenges. Is so let's extend the metaphor that Christina uses in an essay about open mic night. Oh yeah, like so so what I'm talking about now is you've got your set, you've got your material, and now you're going to go on stage, yeah, and you're going to test and validate the idea based on how the stage reacts, and like. There's a lot of directions to take it. I think, on the one hand, it's almost like it's it's almost like a tautology. Like, of course, it's true because this is your audience, and so if the audience doesn't respond, you can't expect the audience to suddenly respond if you do something else. At the same time, I guess I have like I don't know if I can articulate this question clearly, but I wonder if open mic night scales. So, in other words, within a relatively small community of performers, I get it. Mm-hmm. You've got three people coming up at night or whatever mm-hmm. and, and the laughs will tell you who the funniest person is. But when you're on a medium or a platform where you have millions of publishers, I wonder if the dynamics don't work out in such a way that the behavior that wins is actually not necessarily the best or the most effective. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know how to articulate it. So that. I think there are a couple of themes here and I don't want to speak for Christina but I'll, t- I'll give my take on that line around medium kind of I think I think the line is that she says in some ways that it isn't isn't open mic night. I, I have it here. So it's medium has and hasn't become the new open mic night. It's easy for a newcomer to get the attention of established people, but it's so public and the format of well polished essays generates a lot of anxiety. Yeah. So I think that the the shell is the thing that Christine is referring to. And, right. And um, you know, this ties into what we were talking about before around the communities of practice and having your workplace be a performative environment and needing a place like Orbital where you're not performing um, as well as the comment we were making before about Google Docs versus <laughs> um, uh, paper. Um, 
you know, the practice of working in public is is something uh, that I think is more personal, like maintaining a lab notebook. Um, and, uh, and it's there so that you have this kind of guide to dump your thoughts and your process um, into so you can get it out of your head. Um, and there's the chance that someone might stumble upon it and might be able to add to it. And, um, but also within the context of our class, the cohort, it's often really helpful for the class to see each other's stumbles, yep. each other's insights, each other's lessons, each other's hardships, because you learn from that, you know, and there's so much value in the soup of all of that versus um, trying to do it alone, which right. I think is just about impossible. The challenge, you know, is that when we first started this notion of working public and blogging as it pertains to the course, um, the internet ha was shaped a little bit differently, right? The the saturation on the platforms, and you know, we're we're still a little bit more tilted towards early adopters, and the culture of these systems were different, right? And you know, as we approach kind of where we're at now in 2017, um, you know, the 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 population of these networks is asymptotically closer to the population of just right. you know the world. Um, and the scale of these platforms is just way larger than what they were, you know, five, six years ago. And so the feeling is very different. So instead of, instead of feeling like we're in our little writing circle and now feels like I'm up on stage at open mic night, you know, presenting my thing for a bunch of strangers, faceless strangers in the crowd. And that has a different, you know, that's going to tend towards performance. Yeah. And if you look at, the, also if you look at the design of the platform, you know, yep. it's a beautiful written platform. It's not a place for your ugly notes. You know, it's a place for amazing ideas to be presented in a very visually beautiful way. It doesn't leave room. It, it It's designed for performance. Right. Right. And I think that writing, I think one really big insight for me was just how, um, what writing is really depends more on the context than anything else, you know. And so, you know, in this concept of using writing to prototype, you do a different kind of writing than say, than say the writing we did for post-industrial design school. Yep. You know, and and so uh, we've been we've been teaching uh, this kind of framework that um, uh, Robin Sloan blogged about, and uh, he uses this term, this phrase, stock and flow, which is you know, borrowed from uh, economics. And um, the idea being that, like, flow is like your tweets. You yeah. know, like, the these are, like, kind of the thoughts that you have that are not necessarily... They're kind of a little bit more fleeting. Um, they're not necessarily about a particular idea that you're trying to share, but, you know, you're it's, it's creating, creating the stream of things that you're thinking about. And your stock is the stuff that's a little bit more timeless, you know, it's the, the essays that you write. It's when you have a more considered thought that you want to publish and, and put out. Right. And we've created, um, um, we've done a little bit more, we've tried a little bit more direction this year to say, hey, we'll, we're going to use Tumblr, we're all, and we're all going to follow each other on Tumblr, and you could use whatever pseudonym you want. You don't have to use your real name. Um, but we want that to be your lab notebook. That's your flow, you know, and Tumblr's great because it's, you know, it works for textual content, visual content. You can post all, all sorts of types of media. If you just posted a photo on it, it's still a decent post. Yep. But you wouldn't use Medium in that way. And so, we, and, and then when this, there are milestones in the semester where we want them to reflect a little bit more deeply, uh, that's when we'll actually prompt them to say, write a Medium post. And that's your, you know, what's a, 
you know, so we're f- finishing up the semester this next week, and so we've you know prompted them to say, look, think about what your lessons are, and, and that's something you can crystallize and, and you know post on something like Medium. The, the stock flow distinction is an interesting one. Uh, I wonder. So I, I think from from your students' perspective, that makes sense. Hey, uh, you've got a Tumblr. That's your flow. For me, podcast podcast is flow, uh, and I love. I, so I think I think there's any number of platforms that are great for flow. I like podcasts a lot because I talked to you a little bit about this earlier, but like I'm paranoid about detritus and spam and trash, and there's just something so wasteful about words like text on the page (laughs) i'm just hyper i'm hyper conscious of that whereas what i've loved about podcasting is someone's gonna look at this it's gonna be a sound file it's gonna be about 40 minutes long and they're they're gonna swim into it or swim out of it but it it feels like it leaves no trace but if flow feels like there are platforms out there for it i wonder if stock is the same and i'm thinking about medium specifically which is i think medium made its name on stock yeah but as a company you're looking for users. You're looking for posts. Oh, that's a great question. And you you have to sort of oh my gosh. So I I wonder how do you negotiate that? Yeah. So I have a gazillion thoughts on this. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Um, and they all come from the battle scars of just working at failed startups. Um, you know, I think that as technologists, we're used to looking at the utility of the things that we do and tying that to uh, outcomes. So we have this feature or we're going after, we're building for you know this audience and, and, and so on. And I think we tend to underestimate the cultural effects. Right. And, you know, one thing about communities and networks is like, you know, who you choose to seed your community with is going to matter a lot more than the feature and functionality that you have. Yeah. You know, so who you reach out to. And I think in the same way, how you choose to accelerate growth, you know, in the early days, that's going to have a cultural impact that, you know, sticks with your brand, that sticks with the expectations. You know, you're, you're, you're teaching people new norms, right? You know, like platforms at an early stage are very much like infants. Mm-hmm. They could go anywhere. And the decisions you make on how you, what you say is acceptable, what you choose to feature, what you choose to promote, what you choose to hold up, that's going to lead the way in terms of how people uh, perceive, you know, your platform. Right. Um, and so I think that's kind of the core challenge is that, yeah, it has become a place for, um, for more considered thoughts. Right. I think it's hard to break that. Right. Yeah, it's it's just interesting to think about the trajectory so many of these stock-oriented platforms have taken, and, and whether or not you know there is a business to build out of that. There is, might not be. There might not be, and you know, and I think that like you know, you said something before that I wanted to not forget, which is this uh, this feeling of like writing in a very crowded world now, mm-hmm. like the, the the notion of detritus and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Christine and I were talking about this yesterday because you know we haven't blogged as much. And, you know, and part of what, where that came up was like, you know, we're challenging the students to do X, Y, and Z, but how come we're not doing as much? Right. Um, and I think one of the conclusions we have is, you know, the, it has nothing to do with the platforms. It has more to do with the fact that culture has shifted. So we have this Tumblr for the, the class that Christine and Cassiopeia and I started, 
you know, in 2012. Right. And we have a ton of people that followed that Tumblr. And, um, but there's very little engagement on it today. Mm-hmm. You know, the features are the same. You know, the functionality is the same. Right. What's changed, I think, between 2012 and 2017 is that the, the, the hype of launching your own company, you know, the hype of designer, entrepreneur, that whole, I don't know if you remember that whole meme. Yeah. Like, you know, that has, that has changed. Yeah. Right. And so it's less exciting. It's less, um, you know, and, and that's, that's the thing that grabs people's attention. It's not the features. Totally. You know, and so um, we live now in a much more hyper-connected world. Um, when something bad happens on the internet, we find it on Twitter, right? Yep. And, and Twitter is kind of the heartbeat for, or the pulse of all of these things. And, you know, it, it changes the way that we interact with these systems. You know, it's, and it's, it's a much more emotional and organic thing. And so I really don't know um, what the future of a lot of these systems for self-expression really are. Uh, like putting my investor hat on, uh, it's highly competitive. Uh, it's easier to do so. Um, is the value in the utility or is the value in the network? Uh, and then do you know that you're growing a network or do you think that you are scaling a platform for technology? Right. Um, we'll have to, we'll talk about that more in another part. <laughs> I think, I think there's a lot there. There is. Um, well, thanks for thanks for doing this. This was awesome. Cool. Thanks for having me on. Yeah.